This morning, we have an awesome opportunity to walk through Isaiah chapter 38 and 39. And what we're going to end up doing this morning is really a form of crisis trauma counseling together. And so some of you are going to go, I've already had my counseling this week. Thank you. I don't need any more. But um, this is actually really important stuff because we all know that the effects of stressful situations and crises in our lives, um, they eat us up from the inside out. They wear down on our souls, they wear down on our, on our bodies, and we feel it. And if you were to look to the left or right, in front of you, behind you, every single person here is dealing with some form of crisis, some form of stress. And see, what is a crisis becomes personal and relative for each person, right? Each one of us is dealing with something, and for some of us, our littlest things are grand. And the person next to us will go, that's meager, but for us, it's personal, and for us, it's relative, That's why, you know, like I work with high school students, a high school student um, can be in a relationship and they get broken up in that relationship and suddenly their world is falling apart. And as parents and sometimes as other people, we go, it's not that big of a deal, but that's a personal crisis that's adding stress in that moment. And so I'm actually going to walk through a couple different um, crises and, and stressful situations that we go through as a start. But one of the things I want to note is that there's this huge level of pressure and expectation that we live under in our society and in our nation that's a lot different from the rest of the world. Because a lot of the rest of the world, they live a very substantial and tangible crisis. But a lot of ours are actually fabricated from the expectations and the pressures that we have created. And so we have more depression, more anxiety, more dependency, and more addiction than a lot of the rest of the world. But let me start by, by starting with high school students. I work with high school students and not even taking into account the fact of the academic, sports, and social pressures and expectations that they have. One of the crises that comes up in the life of a high school student, and we're talking about it right now in our youth group, is the aspect of the, the tongue and, and the bullying that happens. And that you can walk to your campus or be on your sports team and a person can say one word. And it could tear your life down that you go home with so much anxiety and so much stress And so much lack of worth that you go home and some people don't want to live anymore. And we've been talking about that with the students. We just did James 3 a couple weeks ago. The fact that the tongue, though small, is like a spark that can set a whole forest on fire. Or to move on to a lot of us that work, the pressure that a lot of you guys have at a job to perform at a certain level. And if you don't perform at that level, you know you're going to be terminated. And you take that crisis home with you. And you take that stress home and it eats you up. Maybe that's connected with a financial pressure where you have huge bills, collections is coming, and you're struggling to support your family, but it's not just that. It's the aspect of trying to live up to what it seems like everyone else is. Or maybe you're a, you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, and you have this stress and crisis of sometimes juggling kids who are acting out, whether they're little or they're youth, and you're, not, you're so worn down by that that you're also looking at how they compare with other people's kids. And in the peak moments, you feel like there's nothing you can do. Or maybe you're a student in university, and you realize that you missed a major assignment or utterly failed a test, and you're not going to pass a class. And if you didn't pay for your schooling, you don't care. (laughs) But if you're somebody that you're paying for a graduate course, like I pay $1,500 for a seminary course, if you know that you missed something and and you're not going to pass, that's suddenly a crisis because you're realizing you don't have the money to afford to do that. Maybe it's getting a little bit harder and you're feeling the gap in a growing marriage that's getting to a point where divorce and separation is suggested. And you take that crisis with you and you take that stress upon you and it just starts eating you up. Or maybe the worst one that we think about is 
You go to the doctor and you hear that you have a terminal disease and you have X amount of months to live. The list could go on and on. Just watch the news, get on Facebook, look at prayer lists. We deal with a lot of crises. We deal with a lot of stress. We deal with a lot of anxiety. And the question is, and what this passage is going to address, is how does that lead you into dialogue with God? How does that lead you into dialogue with God? Lance talked about that last week, and he drew out so many great points. And if you weren't here, you need to get on and listen to that podcast. You need to get on to the city and read those notes, because he says some pretty powerful points about what does it look like to dialogue with God. And you're going to see it come up again with King Hezekiah this morning. But more importantly, how does that affect your perspective on death and life? How does that affect your stress and your crises in perspective with the fact of death and life? And even more so, how does that display a living trust and reliance on God? So before we get into the text, I need to give you a little bit of groundwork because the groundwork makes a huge difference in how you look at this because what you're going to find is that there's a swap that happens in our Bibles. Chapters 38 and 39 technically come before chapters 36 and 37. Now, I know some of you are going, no, it doesn't. Look, it's in my Bibles, you know, like, no, it it actually does. And let me give you a quick just overview unfolding of what that looks like. The stories that we're about to read actually happened before, and I'm going to give you a couple reasons why. First off, in chapter 38, verse 1, you don't have to look at it yet. It starts with saying, in those days. Isaiah and many prophets, often when they want to give a timeline, they will say the year of the king. They will say something that will give you a time reference. When they say in those days or at those times, he's trying to tell you that what's happening was happening all within the same amount of time, and it's actually overlapping with each other. So it doesn't give you a timeline, but it says it's happening together. But more importantly, you get to verse 5, and God's going to make a promise, promise to King Hezekiah that he will deliver them from Assyria. Well, that's weird, because in chapter 37, God said that, and he did deliver him from Assyria, so why would he say it again if King Sennacherib is dead, right? So that's another point. Thirdly, you're going to get into chapter 39, and you're going to see a king from Babylon come down and check out all of Hezekiah's palace, and Hezekiah is going to show him all his riches, all his treasures, all his armory. The problem with that is that in 36 and 37, and especially in the Chronicles and Kings accounts, Hezekiah has already shown and given away a bunch of his treasures to Assyria on the first wave of attack they did. So he wouldn't even have any treasures to show Babylon. So those also in mixture with other historical documents that show us that the stuff we're about to read happened in about 704 BC-ish. And I always say ish because they don't know. You know, and then the stuff that happened in chapters 36 and 37 happened around 702 and 701. So you need to know that swap. But the big question becomes, why does Isaiah put this in a swapped position? Why does he put 38 and 39 at the end when they're actually before? And that's because Isaiah is writing thematically. Isaiah is not trying to keep it chronological, but he wants to make a certain point. And that point is that he wants to point to the fact that kings, human kings, are not people you can rely on. You need a greater servant king. And that's what the rest of Isaiah is going to talk about. Chapters 40 to 66 are going to talk about the coming suffering servant and how he is going to fulfill that. So as we get into Isaiah 38 and 39, we're actually going to start by reading a portion of 2 Chronicles 32, 24 to 26. And I'm going to want you to keep your fingers in a couple spots because I'm going to be all over the place and trying to go fast. But it basically starts with 2 Chronicles 32 and 2 Kings 20, which are parallel accounts. But 2 Chronicles 32, 24 to 26 sets the stage for what we're talking about because it says, in the context of all that's happening, Hezekiah's heart was proud 
And he did not respond to the kindness shown to him. Therefore, God's wrath was on him, but he repented of the pride of his heart. Therefore, the Lord's wrath did not come upon them during the days of Hezekiah. So let me pray for the word, and then we're going to dive in, and we're going to be going fast. So keep up. I know you can, because you do it with Lance all the time, right? So let's pray. (laughs) Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God that sees our crises, that you're a God that, that knows our stress. And Lord, we pray that you would show us the same things that you showed Hezekiah, Lord, that you would teach us from his failures, teach us from his faithfulness. And Lord, we pray that you would just make your word come alive. And we ask this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ. Everybody said, amen. There we go. There's some high schoolers. Our high schoolers, when we say amen in youth group, everyone claps simultaneously together. It's, you can always, it's cool to be in Mexico and we're all doing it. 50 people and everyone's looking at us, right? 1200 people are like, what are you doing? So, all right. So there's a lot of things and I already highlighted one of them, but one of the main things that you're going to see in this text, Isaiah 38 to 39 is the fact that you cannot rely on a human king. See, Hezekiah was starting to become idealized by the Israelites because they looked at him as coming in after his father Ahaz and he came in and he started reforming Judah. He started coming in, tearing down all the idols, getting people to refocus on what God was doing. One of the big things he initiated was he initiated Passover again. And to think about one of the greatest holidays that can ever be celebrated in the Jewish history to not be happening, he's bringing it back into play, getting people recharged and refocused on remembering who their God is and what he's done. So he's doing all this awesome stuff, and people are starting to wonder, is this the servant? Is this the Messiah from the Davidic line that's supposed to come? Maybe this is. And what Isaiah's going to show is, nope, he was human. And that passage in Second Chronicles tells us, Even amidst powerful prayer moments and moments of faithfulness, you're going to learn from his faithful work and learn from his errors and his crises. But most importantly, you're going to learn how he interacted with God on it. So if you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 38, 39, page 598 in the the versions that are in in the chairs here. But let's start reading and let's get moving. Hezekiah became sick. And was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Happy thoughts. Right? Great way to start. So here you have this illness that starts off. And it doesn't tell you until a little bit later, but his illness is actually two-sided. One of the parts of the illness is he has this boil. It doesn't tell you where it is on his body, but this boil is what's causing him physical torment, and it's somehow going to lead to his death. But even greater, and the context of everything from 36 to 39 is playing into this, is the fact that he knows that Assyria is moving in on him. He knows that Assyria is coming around him, and they're going to wipe him out. And so he has this stress and this crisis that's wearing on him. And anyone here knows that when you have something exterior playing into your life and it increases your blood pressure and it adds stress and anxiety, it can make you so sick to your stomach, right? You know what I'm talking about? So Hezekiah has it from two fronts. He has his physical and this exterior thing playing in. But that passage in 2 Chronicles makes it really clear that part of what's happening here is that even the most greatest and most godly looking guy can become proud and he disobeys God. He became a little bit fallible, he became self-centered, and he needed a trial and a sign to help him trust in what God said. So God sends Isaiah, Isaiah comes in and he goes, this is what the Lord says. And anytime you see a prophet say that, that's a lock. They're not going, this is what the Lord might do, right? They're usually saying, this is what the Lord says, which means this is what's going to happen. When God says something, it locks. But what's interesting in this passage is that God ends up changing his plan. 
God decides not to play it out that way, but he's waiting for the supplication or the prayer of the king so that he can play into his trials and play into his faith and play into his hope. So Isaiah comes and he says, set your house in order. When he says that, it's got two sides to it. The first side is he's saying, you need to figure out an heir. Because you're going to see a little bit later in the passage that he doesn't have an heir. Manasseh is not born for another three years. He has no one that's going to follow him in the Davidic line. So he's got to figure out who's going to run the kingdom of Judah. But then secondly, anytime a prophet says, set your house in order, they're also saying, it's time to get right with God. Because your life's about to be done. Look at verse 2, verse 3. Then Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord. Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Hezekiah knew how to respond in a threatening crisis, even when it seemed like it was coming directly from the Lord. A lot of different commentators will note about when he turned to the wall, it was so different than a different king in the Old Testament, King Ahab, one of the kings of Israel, who when something didn't go right for him, he goes into his room and he turns his face to the wall and sulks and whines. It actually gives me a picture of my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter who when she gets in trouble and cries, you go into her room and she's halfway under the bed and all you see is her calves sticking out and hear crying under there. And all commentators go, what Hezekiah did was not that. What Hezekiah did is he turned to the wall in prayer. And he started engaging and dialoguing with God. And look what he does. He appeals to his life record and goes, God, I've been faithful. I've had a complete heart. But then he just starts weeping. A lot of us know exactly how that feels. He's weeping and he's going, this isn't good. You know, this isn't good. You know, you got that certain sobbing that you see. And if somebody was there, you would wonder if they would be asking him the questions, why do you want to live? What do you want to stay around for? And I think Hezekiah would end up saying, I want to live because I want to continue to serve God. I want to continue to affect his nation. I want to live because I'm human. I don't want to die. (laughs) But he's burdened not only for himself, which is natural, but I think he's burdened for the nation and he's burdened for the throne because he knows that if there is no heir and there's no Davidic line, how is the Messiah going to come? How is, how is somebody from the Davidic line going to come if he's the last line of David? So he's wondering all those things. And he's asking that question, why, Lord, is this happening right now? Is now really the time? And I agree with what a couple commentators say, where they say, Hezekiah's bitter weeping after his prayer was because he realized his own unworthiness. So as he sat there and prayed to God and said, God, I have done right what's in your eyes. I've been faithful. I've been wholehearted in what I've been doing. That as he started saying that, that he stopped and just started crying because he knew that really, despite everything he's done, he's still a man that is unworthy. He is still a man that needs to trust God rather than his own work. Makes me wonder about the question of what happens when you ask God to rethink his action. What happens when you ask God to change his plan? Have you guys ever been praying to God and you go, God, I would totally love for you to do this, but you can also do this. And you give God options. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny that we do that? And it's because we don't always know how to pray as Lance talked about last week. And a lot of us know that we faithfully pray for deliverance often and we don't receive it. And the question always has to do with what is God doing in his larger purpose and where does your life play into it? Let's keep going, though. Second Kings 20 gives a little filler because it tells you that after Isaiah told him he's going to die and Isaiah's leaving the palace, as he's leaving the palace, before he even gets to the middle court, God goes, go back in. I'm going to have another thing for you to tell him. So Isaiah turns around, walks back in, and that takes us to verse 4. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayers and I have seen your tears. Second Kings 20 adds on the third day, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. And then you jump back to Isaiah. I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my sake and the sake of my servant. The first thing you need to hear, the first thing you have to note, is that God addresses his cries and his tears. Anytime that you feel like you are being ignored by God, you need to know that God hears and God is watching. One of the things you see is that God doesn't make any reference to his works or his piety. He goes, I saw you praying. I saw you crying. I'm aware of this. It always makes me think of Genesis 21:16. That's the story of Hagar and Ishmael, right? Hagar was the servant of, uh, of Abraham, um, Abraham's wife, and they had a child, Ishmael. And at one point, Sarah, Sarah says, send them away, and Abraham does. And God even gives them that direction. And while Haggai and Ishmael are out in the wilderness and her son is going to die, she leaves him off in the distance because she can't bear to watch him die. And it says that she sits there and, re- and weeps. And it says that God heard her and God came and responded. Pretty powerful stuff to know that God will meet us no matter how big or little we think our problems are. But what's happening here is that Isaiah is giving him a message that tells Hezekiah this is all connected with a larger purpose because twice he mentions the fact of I'm doing this for the sake of my servant David. I am doing this because of the kingdom and the servant that I want to send. Hezekiah doesn't know all those details, but God's trying to make it clear. But then thirdly, God wants him to see the bigger picture and God wants to know that he's preparing Hezekiah through this preliminary trial of his sickness that's going to challenge him to trust God to such a point that when Assyria comes and, and, and the king is threatening them, Hezekiah, through his trial, is now prepared to fall on the, on the ground to the Lord in prayer and talk to him. So God's setting him up for that. Now I want you in your Bibles to jump down to verses 21 and 22. Because not only is 38 and 39 swapped to 36 and 37, verses 21 and 22 actually come before verses 7 and 8. And you're probably going, you are crazy, you're all over the place. No, it's the Bible not me. So what happens is in verse 21 and 22, it tells us about how Isaiah comes in now as a doctor (laughs) and he goes, now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. And Hezekiah also had said, what is, or what will be the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord. And that's where you see this thing happen before the next sign that God gives, where God uses medicine as a response to his prayer. See, lots of times we're praying for the supernatural healing. We're praying for God to work in that imminent, quick. In this instance, God goes, I'm giving you some fig ointment. How many of you guys hate going to a doctor and you're like wanting a shot, you want something else, and they give you a cream, right? And you're like, come on, there's got to be something more, right? Give me an IV of something, you know? He gives them just this simple thing and shows that God works through medicine. And when Hezekiah asks if he can go up to the temple, that's because the boil that's associated with skin diseases and leprosy within the Old Testament means that he cannot draw near to the presence of God. And that's what Hezekiah cares about the most. That after he gets treated and he's been told it's going to take three days, he goes, when can I go go closer to God's presence? I want to go talk to God. Look at verses 7 and 8. You get one sign that he's going to be healed by the fig ointment. But then verses 7 and 8 tell about another sign. It says, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord. That the Lord will do this thing he's promised. Second Kings 20 fills in the gap because Isaiah gives 
Hezekiah options, and he goes, shall the shadow go back 10 steps or forward on Ahaz's um, steps? It's a simple, and then Hezekiah concludes, it's a simple matter for the shadow to go forward, rather have it go back. And so Isaiah picks it up and it says, behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the stairway of Ahaz, turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the stairway, the 10 which it had declined. This is a massive sign in the heavens, right? That the sun, or whether you talk about it as the earth, right? Because for them, they felt like the sun went the other direction. But whether it's the earth stopped and started spinning the opposite direction, the sun started moving back. All the shadows changed. And you know everyone would have been tripping out. But you have this, 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 um, this thing that Ahaz, his father, had brought back from Damascus. was this giant pillar that was surrounded by steps that were in concentric circles. And he used it as a form of a sundial, although it wasn't technically that. And, and as that was up there, the sun starts making the shadow go back on the steps. I had a father and daughter come up to me last night, and they had done some calculations based on some, some of this stuff we were talking about. And they were like, it was 0.66 of an hour that it went back. And I was like, that, that sounds pretty convincing, because that's about 40 minutes that the sun goes back. But here's why it's important. The Assyrians, the Babylonians... They were the ones that worshipped the sun god. They're the ones that were going, hey, this is the god that we believe in, and these are the ones that are threatening Israel. And God's going, these are the people you're afraid of. Well, let me show you what I can do with the sun. And just so you know, God always makes sound effects when he does any miracle. It's a fact. I think God created sound effects. But God does this awesome miracle. And so he gives Hezekiah two signs. He gives him a sign that works through natural means through medicine, and he gives him a sign that's remarkable and unexplainable in the skies. God's trying to get his attention. He's trying to show him he's a God he can trust. Here's where we get into the bulk of our message. This is going to be verses 9 to 21. And this is where the fill in the blank on your notes come in. Some of you are probably going, oh, he missed the fill in the blank. No, I didn't. I had a plan, maybe, all along. But um, this is where the fill in the blank basically goes, death is lame. Amen? And God works with our life. And that's what you're going to see Hezekiah talk about because he ends up writing this psalm, this song, about how he felt within all this. So let's jump right into this. Verse 9, chapter 38. A writing for Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. So you get this backward glance. We don't know when he wrote it, but at some point he went back and said, here's how I felt, and then God worked, and here's how I felt. So he protests death. As a start, and then he talks about how he felt that God behaved before and after. So look at verse 10. He says, In the middle of my days, or the Hebrew technically says, the prime of my life, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol, and, be, and, I, and why should I be robbed for the rest of my years? Verse 11, I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Verse 10, and you'll see it again in verses 18 and 19, he talks about the differences between life and death. He goes, life and death are different. Duh. Right? You're like, that should be obvious. But he makes this big point, and he mentions this aspect of going to Sheol, and this aspect of feeling like he's going to be cut off from God's presence by going to Sheol. And, and you have to kind of quickly explain that, and I'm going to do it really quick, um, because in an Old Testament Jewish approach to Sheol, we have to understand what that word means because we associate Sheol is the Hebrew word for, for, for um, the grave or this dwelling place. But in the Greek, it's Hades. And we always associate, associate Hades with what? Hell. 
And that's not exactly what it was, especially in the Old Testament context. So Sheol was this dwelling place of the soul after death. It was like being locked away in a prison city that everybody that died, whether the righteous or the wicked, went down there until they were freed. There's no activity within it. It's considered a place of silence and darkness, and the dead descend down into it. But God is able to ransom people from its power. That comes through very clearly. You'll see this all in Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes. This is all going to be in my notes on the city. So if you want to get deeper, you can. But the thing is, is that it always was associated with the concept of both the righteous and the wicked being there. And so even within Sheol, they had this aspect of paradise within Sheol, which we now equate to heaven. And then they had a place of torment within Sheol. But both souls would be there. Right? And so that was the understanding. You see that in Genesis 37, 35. But see, the hard part was, is the Old Testament saints, they did not have a clear or perfect understanding of what to expect in Sheol. And so at its core, it was viewed as being cut off from God. And so even guys like Jacob would say things like, oh, I don't want to descend into Sheol because I feel like I'll be distanced from God's presence. That's why Hezekiah feels this way. Now we have this whole post-cross, post-resurrection aspect that we understand. And there's a whole lot of scriptures. Again, check them out on the city. But Revelation 1.18, Ephesians 4, 8 and 9, 1 Peter 3.18-22, and 1 Corinthians 15.20-23 are passages that talk about when Jesus died, that he descended down, and they believe into Sheol, and that he came and he ransomed all the righteous souls from there. And Lance and I were talking about this on Wednesday because we talked about how powerful would it be to be in Sheol, all these souls, and you see the Messiah coming down into it with the keys to unlock and free. And if you're, the, if you're not the righteous, to watch all these other souls ransomed and taken up, I mean, that's powerful. That's heavy stuff. But Scripture walks through that very clear. Another good story to see is, is, is Luke 16 where Jesus actually talks about a parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where it shows this kind of picture of how they viewed Sheol. So again, these are all things to check out. I really don't have time to go through them in depth. But let's keep going. He now starts going into some metaphors to talk about how death feels. And he says, My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. And so he gives this machine gun fire of metaphors. And he says, this is what it's like. This is what it's like. My life feels like a tent that you set up, but then just as quickly you tear it down and you move on. I know what that feels like because it took us like three hours in Mexico to set up all of our tents. And then we tore it all down in 45 minutes. Right? We know how that, all the people from Mexico are like, amen. Yeah, we know. Right? He gives this other example of the woven cloth being on the loom. And he says, just like someone that's working on the loom cuts the threads off and rolls up what they've just weaved, God is taking my life. He's cutting it off. He's rolling it up. He's done with me. Then he talks about God being like a lion, that although he's trying to calm himself and set his heart at a, at a great level, God is breaking all his bones like a lion. And then he says this interesting statement twice, from day to night, you bring me to an end. And that word, bring me to an end, is so hard because it, it has this idea of finish, but the actual root word for it is the idea of execution. And you're like, wow, you feel like God's executing you? And then look at what he says next. He goes, like a swallow or a crane, I chirped, I cried, I moaned like a dove, my eyes are weary with looking upward, and in the Hebrew it says, to the heights of the heaven. Where he goes, man, I am tired of asking. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. 
And these verses seem to express a night that Hezekiah is expressing about how he spent it in prayer with just these simple cries and moans and the inability to look up any longer in prayer, that he's so worn out from trying to cry out to God that he can't even look up to the heavens anymore. And he wakes up just feeling more burden and more stress and more of his crisis upon him. He says, I am troubled. I am pressured to such a point that I don't feel like I can stand anymore, whether it was under a debt or it was under something physical. And I think he's crying out a question that if we were to put it in our modern day lingo, he's saying, why aren't my problems being resolved? That's the cry of our prayers. He says, God, be my pledge of safety. Bail me out. And then he switches gears. Verse 15. He goes, here's how God has responded and acted. Here's how my lifestyle will look. Verse 15, he says, but what shall I say? He has spoken to me and he himself has done this. He goes, I'm going to rethink everything because no words can describe the gratitude I have for God. I certainly cannot continue to say what I said or thought or how I felt before. Because how I felt before was that God was destroying me, executing me. That I was going to be cut off from God. But that's not how it is anymore. Because God has worked in my life. He has spoken to me and he himself has done this. Look what he says in the rest of 15 and 16. He says, I will walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness or the anguish of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. You restored me to health and let me live. He says, I'm going to walk as a totally different person. Literally in the Hebrew, it's saying, I will wander about all my years, which is a metaphor for I'm going to walk humbly. I'm going to walk differently Because I understand the crises I was in, the stress I was under, and how God spoke and how God worked. And he goes, those are the things I'm able to live by, God's speech and God's activity. Those are the things that give life to my spirit, his word and his activity. That's what frames my life. But here's where it gets the best. This is what God honed in my heart on, and it hit me dead in the face. Verse 17. See, it was for wholeness or for my welfare I had great bitterness. But in your love, you delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you cast all my sins behind your back. This is where Isaiah, sorry, Hezekiah is able to go, man, God made me more whole. God completed my life more within my problem, within my crisis, within my bitterness. This gave me a new perspective, and I can now testify to this. Some of us, we've come to the other side of a crisis in our life or a stress and bitterness, and we can see what God has done. Some of us feel like we're just entering it, and we go, how can you say that? You don't even know what I'm going through. Let me share you a little bit about my crisis and my stress. Because for the last 10, 15 years, I've been dealing with something called juvenile periodontal disease. My stress all involves my mouth. Juvenile periodontal disease is where your gums recede at a, at a quick pace and your bone and your, and your teeth also wear down. And what happens is, if you don't keep check on it, your teeth just start falling out. I learned about this about 10 years ago, and so I had to become like hyper-hygienic. And so I do like an hour process every night of cleaning my teeth. Now, if you're a dentist here, you're like, preach it, right? Because you want everybody to do that. Because, because you're like, oh, no, yeah, do that anyways. Um, it has caused so much stress. And it has been my crisis that even two months ago, I had to finally have two teeth in my lower left quadrant, say I know way too much, um, extracted. And, uh, and so I had this surgery. I got it extract, extracted. I had this osseous surgery. And then, and then what happens is about a week later, I'm going to staff meeting on a Tuesday morning. 
And I start just feeling all this sensitivity and all this pain, both in the teeth that are left and is also in the other side. And I'm sitting in the parking lot of the Starbucks on Eureka, haven't even gone in yet, and I just start crying. And that was my crisis, and that was my stress. And I'm texting pastors, I'm, I'm, call, I'm talking to my wife on the phone, and I just couldn't do it. Everything was washing in on me. That was my personal crisis. And I'm a pastor, and I deal with a lot of other people's crises, and I know that there are so many worse things that were going on in people's lives. People are dying. People are dealing with major levels of depression and suicide and all this stuff, and here I am crying over my mouth. But that was my personal crisis. And it wasn't until those weeks following it that God showed me the same thing that I felt like he showed Hezekiah in verse 17. He showed me how to lean into him and depend more on him. And I'm able to say that God has made wholeness in my life out of my bitterness and my anguish of soul. That's God working in powerful ways. But look what he says even more so. He says, you loved my life and my soul back from the pit. That's powerful words for God to love your soul back from what it feels like death and being cut off from him. He then the second part, you threw all my sins behind your back. God always deals with the issue of our sin and how it relates to our death. He cares about that more than your crisis and more than your stress. You see it when Jesus is doing miracles. Anytime he's doing a miracle, he's going, I forgive you. Go and sin no more. And the person's like, I'm not there for that. I'm here to get healed. God cares always about what's distancing us from him before it's actually affecting you emotionally or mentally. God hears, God watches your tears, but mostly God wants to take your sins and cast them behind him, which is what he did on the cross. Let's continue this and and round it off here in the end of 38 so we can finish 39. Verse 18, he continues talking about Sheol. You're like, thanks. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The father makes known to the children your faithfulness. And he starts by saying these quick statements again about death. And if I were to put it in Pirates of the Caribbean logo, he's saying dead men sing no songs. Right? You know, dead men tell no tale. Dead men tell. You know, dead men sing no songs is what he's trying to say. But what he cares about more is actually the flip side where he's saying, if you're still alive, you're not dead, then you give thanks. You testify to God's faithfulness. You know what he says is true. If you're not dead but alive, what are you doing with God? That's what he's saying. And he's getting excited about that. But then he turns it to any of us that are parents. And he goes, if you're a parent, if you're a father... You make known to the children your faithfulness. You're supposed to trickle down to your kids how you depend on God, how you look at God in your crisis and in your stress. Because they are going to get to a point of stress. They are going to get to a point of crisis. And they're going to watch how you handle it. And I think that's pretty powerful stuff. He rounds it off, verse 20. The Lord will or is saving me and we will play my music on string instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. He goes... You know how I'm going to live the rest of my life? As long as I'm alive, I'm going to rock it with God in worship. And we're like, amen, yeah, pick up the guitar, right? And he gets into that. And the reason why I think this whole section is important and that Isaiah brings it in is because I think this devotional journal entry is something that we need to read again and again, and it's something you can go to every time you feel a crisis and you feel a stress coming. Because Hezekiah says it so well. He knows what it feels like to be being rocked by what's happening in his life, but he knows what it feels like for God to speak and for God to act within it. But now let's transition back into the story because at that same time, something else happened. That reminds us again that good guys screw up. 
and you can't rely on them. So chapter 39, verses 1 and 2, it says, At that time, when he was ill and in recovery, Merodach Baladin, king of Babylon, sent the king letters and a gift because he heard of the illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what it was in his storehouse. Silver, gold, spices, fine oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. Nothing in all the kingdom he didn't show them. This automatically shows you how far the miracles that had happened had gone. Because you have to remember, there was two miracles, right? One was he was healed of his sickness, but the second one was what? The sun moved backward. Babylon was a nation that they studied astronomy. These were guys that looked to the heavens. You have to remember that the Magi that came to see Jesus, these were guys that studied the stuff going on in the sky. Babylon went, dude, the sun moved. And then they heard about Hezekiah's recovery, and they said, we need to go check this out. But there's a lot more happening here, because Merodach Baladin, he was a king of the Chaldeans. And let me, we're going to put the map up really quick, just so you can see this. But Assyria, that's been threatening Israel, is all over here. Babylon's actually down here. And really, Babylon and this king, Merodach Baladin, he's been trying to buck Assyria for all this time. He's been trying to fight them and resist them. And basically Babylon was so far that people would have to go up this way to get down there. You didn't have a real straight, straight passage across. So they're looking at this as no big deal, right? Babylon's a nation that's resisting Assyria. They're worth doing it. But Merodach Baladin is actually going around at this time trying to build alliances so that they could fight off Assyria. Hezekiah knows this. And so when they come, there's a lot more happening here. Because there's a political move happening. Hezekiah is about to go into collaboration with another nation to kind of fight against Assyria. This is what causes Assyria to come and attack Judah, which is what we read in 36 and 37. The problem here is that Hezekiah is depending on a foreign ally more than God, the God who's healed him and the God who's worked massively in taking care of Judah. And it doesn't look like he's paying any attention to God's leading in that. One guy says this, one commentator, he says, human power and glory is exactly what the first half of the book is warning against. Instead of focusing on glorifying God for healing his sickness, Hezekiah is displaying his own glory. He's displaying the nation there. So what does he talk about when the envoys from Babylon come? He shows them what's in his house. And that brings up one big question. When you have a chance to show other people what's in your house, what is it that you show? Anytime somebody that doesn't know the Lord comes into your presence, what is it that you try to show them about you? Do you get a chance to reflect and display what God has been doing and why he's the one you can lean into and the one you can depend on in the high or the low? Or do you end up going, look at everything I have built. What's in your house? Let's keep going. Second Chronicles 32, 31 sets the stage a little bit more to tell you what's happening before we get into verse 3. But it says, But when the envoys were sent by rulers of Babylon to ask him about the miraculous sign that occurred in the land, God left him to test him and to know everything that was in his heart, and pride returned to his heart. See, he dropped the ball. After this, this is what Warren Wearsby says, After a time of severe suffering, sometimes it feels so good just to feel good that we get off guard and we fail to watch and pray. So the king's basking in this fame and wealth, and he's going, man, men from Babylon, even Babylon are coming to see me, right? He's going, I'm awesome. And he's missing it. And this is where uh, Wearsby's able to say this. He goes, Hezekiah was safer as a sick man in bed than as a healthy man on the throne. That's pretty profound. Let's, let's finish this off. 
verses 3 to 7. Isaiah, God's messenger, the guy that Hezekiah should have consulted, walks in and he goes, hey, what did those men say and where did they come from? And you know Hezekiah's like, hey, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here right now. And he goes, oh, they came from a distant land, not from Babylon. Notice that he doesn't answer the first question, what did they say? Because that's a diplomatic issue. Oh, they're from far away. Don't worry about it. Isaiah goes, well, what did they see in your palace? Hezekiah says, well, they saw everything in my palace. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Did he say that embarrassed or did he say that excited? Don't know. I wasn't there. Isaiah says, well, hear the word of the Lord Almighty, the warrior God. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. See, God has been saying through Isaiah to the nation, and that means to the king as well, it's in repentance and rest that your salvation. It's in quietness and trust that your strength. You don't need these people. You don't need these alliances. You need me. Look at Hezekiah's response. I think I would be just as stupid. He says, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. That's great. It's not going to happen now, right? That's what it reads like. As I was reading this and studying it, and even preaching it last night and then getting to this morning, totally I'm switching what I think he was actually trying to say. Because I think he's recognizing that, you know what? God's right. This judgment is appropriate, and I deserved it. And it's actually mixed with grace because God could have, although he promised me 15 more years, God could have said, nope, you screwed up again. <clears throat> Killed him. He doesn't. And I think, I think Hezekiah is going, you know what? God hasn't dealt with me the way I deserve, and that's pretty powerful. But it asks a lot of questions for us about how do you view the future? Are you content with things only in your own time? Or do you care about how it affects your children, your grandchildren, and everyone around you? These are big questions. Hezekiah had two big errors at the end. The first one was, is he didn't ask, what does God want me to do? But secondly, he had a great opportunity to tell the Babylonians about his sickness, to tell them about his prayer, about God's miracle and God's healing. And if he had focused on that and what God had promised to him, that I will defend the city, it would have been obvious that there was no need to depend on the Babylonians. It doesn't care what gifts they brought you. It doesn't matter how far they came. You didn't have to depend on them to help you with dealing with the Assyrians. God's got it covered. Just a couple of years later, he's going to wipe out 185,000 of the Assyrian army. You did not need Babylon. But again, I said this in the beginning, the whole thing is trying to set you up for what Hezekiah, for what Isaiah was trying to say in the beginning. There is no human king that you can rely on. You need a servant king. You need the Lord. And that's what the whole rest of Isaiah is about. Isaiah 40 to 66 is Isaiah setting it up. And he's using the worst part of what Hezekiah did in the end because he wants to get everyone set up to see that you need the servant king. You need the one that you can rely on. And that is Jesus Christ. We know that now. And he's trying to set you up even back then to go, you need Jesus Christ, our savior king, more than anything else. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us, and then you guys can go. We'll give you the challenge for the week. Lord Jesus Christ, um, you know my crisis, and you know my stress, Lord, and you know what's going on in each and every person's life here. And Lord, we pray that you would hear our prayers. We pray that we would know that you hear us and that you see our tears, and that, God, you are working and you are active. 
Lord, help us to dialogue more with you and run to you more and lean into you in dependence and trust. And show us, God, how you make us more whole within the anguish of our soul and within our crises. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you that we can't depend on any human, any human leader, any human king. God, we need your son, Jesus Christ. He is the savior king. He is the servant that has given his life sacrificially and we love him. Lord, bless us, lead us, and show us how much we need to rely on you and nothing else. We ask this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen, amen.